0: You are listening to Your Practice Made Perfect, support, protection, and advice for practicing medical professionals. Brought to you by SVMIC. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Brian Fortenberry, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about Staying out of legal hot water, and uh, what a prevalent topic to many of us, certainly for those in the medical profession, because by its very nature, it's stressful, and the stress and the responsibility of taking care of patients is it's always there, and it's something that can certainly take its toll on physicians as they practice. Then you compound that problem with the potential for a malpractice lawsuit, and it really can be stressful. But there are steps, there's things out there that physicians can take that can reduce their chances of being involved in litigation. And to help us get a handle on that and talk about that in this episode is Miss Shelly Weatherly. Thanks for being here.
1: Uh, glad to be here, Brian. Well, thanks. And before
0: we really jump into our topic and get into the meat of the discussion, tell everyone, our listeners, a little bit about yourself and about your experience time here at SVMIC.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I am going into my 29th year here at SVMIC. Way. Way. (laughs) And I started out as a claims attorney. Okay. And did that for a number of years and then moved over to the risk end of things. Currently, I am the Vice President of our Risk Education and Evaluation Services Department.
0: And do a fantastic job. Well,
1: I thank you, sir.
0: As we start here, what are some steps that physicians out there can take to reduce their chances of being involved in a malpractice claim?
1: Brian, you know, you, you really cannot have a conversation about risk mitigation without talking about communication and the doctor-patient relationship. Absolutely. Decades of research confirmed that, oh, roughly 75%, it really depends on the study that you're looking at, but okay. 75 to maybe 85% of malpractice claims stem not really from a loss of life or limb. In, in other words, from a bad outcome. Yeah. But rather from a broken doctor-patient relationship. A broken doctor-patient relationship results when a physician either loses or never had the patient's trust or what I call the benefit of the doubt.
0: That stands to reason. So in that scenario, how does a patient earn that trust or that benefit of the doubt that you were speaking of?
1: Well, it actually starts by creating a patient-centered environment in the office so that office staff, both from the business end of things and the clinical staff, understand the importance of treating patients with respect and with a caring and welcoming attitude, and not like they are a nuisance or an interruption, you know, to their work. And I get, I get that staff in a busy office are stressed, pressed for time. But the truth is, it doesn't take any more time to be polite than it does to be rude. And by showing that helpful, positive attitude, they really can set the foundation for a good relationship before the physician ever sees that patient.
0: And that's Incredibly important It is Because without that Like you're saying The communication breakdown That can be detrimental To anything you do after there But connecting the patient Isn't always just second nature For the physician either Is it?
1: No It really isn't It's not how they were trained Right They definitely don't have a class that teaches them how to connect with a patient. And unfortunately, the demands and the stresses of their training in both med school and in, in residency, which is really more about churning out competent clinicians and surgeons, just serves to kind of beat down the empathy that they started that process with. And empathy is at the core of connecting with patients
0: you're right, and can that empathy be taught? Can those interpersonal skills be taught or can that empathy that we talked about that was lost? Can that really be regained that focus of why you went into medicine?
1: you know I believe it can okay, even if interpersonal skills are not something that happened to come natural to a physician, there are a number of things that I recommend that I think can help him or her, build that rapport and trust with the patient. Why
0: don't you go ahead and share a few of those with us, if you could, then.
1: Okay, well, you know, the common sense things. Like, first, just knock on the door before you enter an exam room. Yes. You know, that's just common courtesy. But, you know, before you even enter the exam room, I tell physicians either review briefly the medical record or have a brief huddle with your nurse to kind of get a sense for why the patient is there. Because I personally find it fairly annoying when a physician, you know, walks in the exam room and says, so, you know, Shelly, what brings you here today when I just spent three minutes telling his nurse what brought me here today? Yeah, so I'd rather have him come in and say, so, Shelly, I, I understand how, you know, my nurse tells me. You've been really struggling with a respiratory crud here for the last two weeks. It's now settled in your chest and you got a nasty cough. Let's take a look and see where we can go from there. Don't you think that sets a much better tone? Absolutely.
0: I mean, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you walk in that office and you're treated like not just another patient,
1: exactly,
0: that you're treated like an individual that has complaints and they really care, it, it does make a difference.
1: Exactly. And then I think it's important to greet the patient's warmly. Sure. I like a personal touch actually I used to say you know when you go in maybe just a pat on the back pat on the shoulder but quite honestly with this cultural reckoning that we are seeing these days over objectionable touching sure it might be that now the safer course is to maybe do what I like to call the two-hand handshake
0: yeah <laughs>
1: right where you you know the patient extends his or her hand and you kind of clasp it between I just I feel like that's a little warmer and a little more personal right. in establishing that connection And then I tell physicians, just sit. You know, sit down, look them in the eye. Sitting suggests you're not rushed. Even if you spend a couple minutes with them, it'll feel longer because you're sitting. Looking them in the eye says, I'm giving you my full attention. And then let them talk and express their concerns and their expectations for the visit without interruption. That is not always easy for physicians to do. Sure. There are plenty of studies out there that show that patients really are allowed to talk for maybe 18 to 25 seconds before the physician will interrupt them because they're just trying to get on with the visit. But if you do let them talk without interruption, it shows that you value their opinion and their feelings. And you know, you just might get an important tidbit of information that's going to help you manage their care.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It just makes sense, and that does make a difference. What type of things, when we start looking at this, there's going to be certain documents that you have to obtain, from informed consents to things like that. What type of things should a physician discuss when they're having these discussions?
1: Are you maybe referring to like an informed consent discussion? Yes,
0: yes, exactly.
1: Sure. Um, I, I think that's really important that they do engage in a, a meaningful patient education and informed consent process. I think physicians are well aware of their legal and ethical obligation right. to give patients sufficient information with which they can then make an informed decision about the course of their medical care, that's just a legal obligation. But I think what they overlook oftentimes is the opportunity that that discussion provides them to really build some rapport to engage the patient in that discussion. It also serves, I think, to better achieve compliance because you're engaging the patient in their care. And let's just face it, if a compliant patient is less likely to have an adverse outcome. And if they don't have an adverse outcome, what are they going to sue you for?
0: Right. So You're reducing your risk just by doing that then.
1: Well, that's exactly right. So again, I think a good informed consent discussion is helpful on a couple of different fronts in preventing litigation.
0: And just the educational value, if nothing else. So with that in mind, can you give us an idea, maybe an example of how that talk might go, what that might look like?
1: Well, sure. What you're going to want to do is talk to them pretty much about the nature of their condition. You'll want to talk about your treatment recommendation, what options are available, what alternatives may be available. So, say you've got somebody who has gallstones. Okay. So, the talk may go something like, so, Shelley, the abdominal ultrasound that I sent you for does show that you have a number of stones in your gallbladder. Now, the good news is we now have a reason for the intense pain that you have been experiencing. Sure. And we got a couple options here. The first might be to treat with medication. There are medicines, there are drugs out there that can serve to dissolve the stones. But you got a lot of them. And it could take anywhere from you know several months to a year before we can get those taken care of. And the truth is, it wouldn't take care of it permanently. Right. In all likelihood, they do reoccur. Mm-hmm. So the second option, which I'm recommending, is surgery. Go ahead and take your gallbladder out. I would do it laparoscopically. And that is, I would make four small incisions in your abdomen. And you know, the truth is here, Brian, I think a good tool to use is maybe a diagram. And you actually show them, draw out where these incisions are going to be. Okay, sure, yeah. But you'll say, through these four incisions where I will actually then insert instruments, take your gallbladder out, your recovery time will be brief, you know, maybe five days to a week. It's outpatient, so you won't have to be in the hospital. And then it will permanently deal with this problem. There are some risks, doesn't happen often, but with any kind of surgery, you might be looking at some bleeding, some infection, you know, some of the organs around the gallbladders, I'm taking it out, could get nicked. But again, those are very rare. This is a very common, very safe procedure. Now, if For any reason, either there's maybe some inflammation that I haven't anticipated or anatomically there's something with you that makes it hard for me to take your gallbladder out that way or I don't feel it's safe, Sure, then I would have to do an open procedure just so I can maybe get a broader view of everything. The risks are pretty much the same with the infection, the bleeding, you know, possible injury to adjacent organs, but the recovery time would be greater. And I want you just to know that I don't think it's likely to happen. You're a great candidate. You know, sure. you, you haven't had any prior abdominal surgeries. You're in great shape. I think this will work, but I just want you to know that that is a remote, remote possibility so you won't be shocked if it happens. And if instead of being home that night, you have to be in the hospital for four days or five days because that's what will happen if it in, in an open procedure. And the recovery time, it's not a week. It's more like four weeks to six weeks. But again, I don't see that happening. I just want to share, you know, all the information so that you're fully informed. And then you kind of look at them and and you basically just say, now, I know that this has been a lot of information. As soon as you heard the word surgery, I'm sure there was some anxiety and, and maybe just processing everything is a little tough. So I'm going to give you this written material. Take home, share with your family. If you have any questions, call the office. Either your nurse or I will answer any questions that you have. In the meantime, before you leave here today, is there anything else that I can answer for you? Any concerns that you have? Can you see how just the very nature of that conversation helps engage the patient and helps with that connection?
0: I absolutely can. It does so much for the patient just knowing that opportunity to educate. And I feel like you as the physician haven't just checked a box of a legal obligation. You've really informed me of what's going on and, and what's at heart. Now, one thing I did want to ask you about here mm-hmm. is, you know, you talk about those complications and that's always a tricky part. I'm certain when you're having to talk to patients, but what happens if one of the complications you talked about unfortunately comes to bear? It happens. Do you have any tips out there that you could help a physician regarding what to do in the vent? of an adverse outcome, because unfortunately, it's just going to happen sometimes.
1: You're right. It is. And an adverse outcome, when it does happen, it can stress that doctor-patient relationship. In general, my recommendation, which is in line with the AMA Code of Ethics, and that is that a physician should at all times deal honestly and openly with patients and provide all of the facts that they need to assure that they understand what has occurred. Now, there are some specific steps. First of all, it should go without saying, but go ahead and deal with the patient's medical needs. Yeah. Then be accessible and be supportive of the patient and the family. Too often, patients who experience these bad outcomes, they just feel that their healthcare provider is being maybe evasive and defensive rather than direct and helpful in providing the information and the answers to their questions. And you sure don't want them trying to get answers to their questions by going to see a lawyer.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
1: So next, I think it's important to express empathy, sympathy, and then offer an explanation So it might go something like, I was sorry to hear that you are having such a difficult experience. I can only imagine how upsetting and confusing this must be to you. Would it help if I explain why I didn't order that MRI earlier or that lumbar puncture earlier? Or would it help if we go over the steps in the care so that you can better understand how this happened? Again, I think while an adverse event is clearly challenging, avoiding defensive behavior and comments, and then showing empathy and support is going to serve to preserve that patient's trust and the benefit of the doubt.
0: And you have to think, just looking at it from a personal perspective, even if something went wrong, if I felt like the physician communicated well with me and expressed to me exactly what happened, and there was that dialogue, I've probably got more forgiveness on my end, even if there is an adverse outcome. Now, Shelly, what do you recommend if there is, though, this clear medical error? It's not a gray area. It's clearly a medical area that happens. You
1: operate on the wrong leg.
0: Right, right.
1: It is what it is. And patients want to hear a full and honest description of how that could happen. They want an apology. They want to know that the problem will be fixed. And they want their provider to be accountable and to know that you're going to be there to stand by them and, and help them through this. And having a prompt, open discussion of what happened is crucial before they hear it from another source or, again, before they go visit a lawyer.
0: Absolutely. I think you have done a very good job of covering what should be done in this type of scenario, establishing and maintaining this good relationship with your patients. So what else can physicians do out there, our listeners and policyholders, to stay out of, as we say, legal hot water?
1: Well, give good attention to your documentation.
0: That's a big one, I guess. It
1: is. A properly documented medical record can certainly be a powerful defense weapon in the event of a malpractice lawsuit because it's objective and because juries trust it. After all, it's a witness whose uh, memories never fade. True. Right? Very true. But further, a properly documented medical record could even prevent a lawsuit from ever being filed. Laws vary. You know, different states have different laws. But before an attorney files a malpractice lawsuit, they have the obligation to exercise some due diligence to see whether or not there's really some merit to this. And that involves requesting the medical record and reviewing it. And if they review a medical record that is so clearly and completely documented that not even, say, creative interpretation would support a theory of liability, They just may decline to file it. Unfortunately, I have seen plenty of physicians turned into defendants because their record just did not properly reflect the level of care that they gave.
0: You probably, as you said, could stay out of some lawsuits and litigation just on the fact of this excellent documentation. So building on that, what should a physician's documentation look like? What should it include to be that, as you said, almost... Beyond reproach type of documentation?
1: Well, the simple rule is to document clearly, completely, timely, professionally, and accurately. And you sure want to avoid any shenanigans that might call into question the credibility of the record, uh, such as you know maybe late entries that aren't designated as such, gotcha. or alterations.
0: You look like you're doctoring it, I guess. Then, well, you right? do,
1: you do, and especially if you go back in and change something after there's been a bad outcome, that's just going to look self-serving and right. call into question the credibility of the entire record. Yes. So, now some things to specifically include. A comprehensive medical, family, and psychosocial history. Okay. The chief complaint or the purpose for the visit. You'll want to document the clinical assessment. And be sure to document the full extent of the assessment. So, for instance... Say a child comes in after a fall on a playground, complaining of a sore wrist. The assessment is probably going to include the entire upper extremity. Sure. If that's the case, be sure to document that. Oftentimes, we might just see wrist examined, nothing found, or something like that, or sprain, I got that kind you. of thing. So that then, when the child comes in a month later, complaining of an elbow that hurts, on the, you know, if you don't have that documentation, you can't establish well. I looked at that a month ago and everything was fine, so this must be related to something else kind of thing. So you you want that completeness. Whatever the extent of the assessment is, be sure to document that. Then you want to document all relevant positive and negative findings. And when I'm referring to negative findings, it's really those that are customarily documented. Okay. An example would be, say, fever is an important Mm -hmm. positive finding in a patient at risk for infection. Okay. So if there's no fever, then it's customary to see. I see it all the time in medical records that the patient is afebrile. At the same time, chills would be an important positive finding, but it is not customary to document or, or to even ask, you know, to, so to document the absence of chills. Okay. So that's not something that you would normally document. So it's just what is customary to document and what you're going to be looking for. If you don't find it, document it. Then you'll want to document the diagnosis and the medical impression and the rationale for your decision-making process if it's not obvious. For instance, if you're going to prescribe pain medication for a bone fracture, right? I'm not normally going to see in the medical record prescribe this for pain. That's obvious. I got you. However, if you discontinue a medication because of a adverse reaction – You'll want to document medication being discontinued for uh, adverse reaction, and you'll want to document the extent of it. Was it just simply the patient developed a rash and then had some itchy you know, spots, or did they go full-on anaphylactic? That's an important distinction to include in your documentation. And then, let's see. All pertinent in-person and telephone conversations with patients and families should be documented. Otherwise, you could find yourself in a swearing match with the patient as to what was discussed. And before I came in here, I actually ran across a couple of pediatric examples that would illustrate the importance of having that, you know, telephone. Yeah. Well, the first involved a physician who failed to document information that he gave to the parents regarding possible risks and side effects of this antibiotic that he prescribed for the very first time for a 12 month old child. Okay child ends up suffering an anaphylactic reaction requires hospitalization and the lack of documentation of course then created the swearing match I and mean, it just bolstered the plaintiff's argument of negligent care and you know the mother's argument that she might have recognized a little more quickly that something was wrong had she been made aware of these side effects i got you the second case involved the failure to document late night instructions given to mom to take her child who had a hundred and four degree fever and had a history also of a kidney transplant mm. immediately to the emergency room. The child was not taken until the next day, and uh, that was just when she became non responsive. She further deteriorated in the hospital and then it was a really sad case. She ended up dying from septic uh-huh. shock, secondary to a UTI. Mm. Mom claims that she was told the child likely had a virus and that there was no reason to take her to the emergency room. Of course, the physician claimed otherwise. Contemporaneous documentation of his instructions Mm -hmm. would have, I think, greatly aided in the defense of the case, which we ended up having to settle. Lastly, I just want to make a couple of points specific to electronic health records. Okay.
0: Yeah, because that's a big thing out there today.
1: Well, it is. And by far and away, the majority of physicians are using, obviously, electronic health records. And it's important that physicians review and correct all of their documentation that might have either auto-populated or been carried over from a previous visit just to ensure that it's an accurate reflection of what's currently going on. And then likewise, make sure all defaulting data that's associated with templates has been reviewed and is edited to include only the information that's associated with this particular visit.
0: And as you're going through that list, I'm thinking, yes, all of this makes sense, especially in light of the fact that we were talking about your documentation is probably your best witness if litigation is ever filed. Because I'm sitting there thinking about, man, having to go back and explain why or why not. And you're saying, well, I meant this when I wrote this. Whereas if you had put it in there and written it clearly, there is no debate.
1: It's just there, there. And remember, lawsuits, you may be called on to testify as to what happened three years Four years down the road. right? So truly trying to rely on memory when you're seeing 20 patients a day and remembering that specific patient at that specific time, no jury buys you can do that.
0: I can't tell you what I had for lunch last week, (laughs) much less what happened three or four years ago. What about office systems and processes? How do they relate to the malpractice litigation? Because I've got to think it has some bearing.
1: Well, it does. Failure to diagnose continues to be one of the top allegations that we see in our claims. But most often, that failure doesn't have anything to do with how the physician is trained or their clinical abilities. It really has to do with the fact that they're operating in poorly designed systems. Sure. And juries are not particularly forgiving of process and systems failures. They're willing to give some grace mm-hmm. to physicians who made the wrong medical decision that seemed reasonable at the time based on the information they had, right. but they're pretty unforgiving when it comes to systems errors because they view them as avoidable and the failure to implement these systems as just being careless.
0: Well, in light of that, what are some of the best practices, Shelley, that you know about out there that would help prevent some of these failures that juries could potentially look at as careless?
1: Well, there's a list of them, so let me run through as quickly as I can. Okay, First, offices should have an effective tracking method... For all lab tests, diagnostic imaging, and referred patients. A misplaced or a lost test result that might have changed the physician's approach to a particular patient's problem is a common theme that we continue to see at SVMIC, you know, with our claims. Mm -hmm. And whatever tracking method is chosen, it should be used consistently across the practice. So, whether you're using a log system, a tickler system, an appointment scheduling system to track, or an electronic system, having one system used is especially important. You know, on days when staff absences require employees to assist a provider with whom they might not be familiar. Then in order to ensure proper follow-up for patients who require a return office visit, the practice should schedule them before they leave the office. You can't always do that. Patients are like, I don't really know what I have next week. I'm going to need to call you and schedule. But you should have a system in that event so that staff is alerted to make appropriate efforts to reach those patients if they don't call back and schedule that appointment. I also think it's good practice for physicians to review all no-shows and cancellations to determine appropriate follow-up. And maybe not every no-show requires Uh, follow-up. Say you've got somebody who was in last week for allergy issues, a flare-up of allergies, you've scheduled them to come back this week just to make sure the medication adjustment is working. They don't show, you're going to go, ah, that's working. Probably don't need to call them to come in. But if it's the patient who was supposed to come back after you sent her for a mammogram for a suspicious breast mass, you're going to follow up on that patient. And it's just the physician to be able to make that decision. Sure. We recommend having a policy to notify patients of all test results and to instruct patients to call the office if they haven't received those results within a specified period of time. Speaking of test results, be sure to implement a system that ensures that abnormal results are flagged so they don't get inadvertently filed away someplace without a physician seeing them and taking the appropriate action. Sure. If you're using an electronic tasking system for inter-office communication... You need to be sure to have a surrogate reviewer who's assigned to open task boxes of people who are out. You don't want some significant test result to be sitting in the box of somebody who's out for a week. Right. Yeah. So you want to have that in place. Now, what also helps keep that from happening is to educate staff that you don't put alarming test Mm -hmm. results in a task box. You communicate them directly.
0: You know, this is a fantastic list and I think worth putting in our show notes below our podcast. Let's shift gears a little bit. The perception is... That medication errors accounts for an enormous percentage of medical liability claims nationwide is that the case still
1: it is it is true and it's not only on a national level additionally, our data at SVMIC confirms that medication related issues are a leading cause of claims and i don 't really expect that trend to wane you know as, as okay. physicians are required to see more and more patients patients are moving between insurance plans and providers so I, I think it's going to continue to be an issue for some time to come. With that
0: being said, the magic question then is, how do we get physicians and other healthcare providers to protect themselves from these possibility of these medication errors then?
1: Well, again, there are some steps that they can take. First, take a complete medication history at that first office visit, and then be sure to update it at each subsequent visit. Also, you'll want to review and update allergies at every visit and whenever you're going to prescribe a new medication. We also advise our policyholders to make it a practice to prescribe medications only after reviewing the record and then to require physician approval for medication refills. Uh, additionally, you should have a discussion, just like we talked about that informed consent discussion, discussion. with regard to the procedure, the We talked about laparoscopic gallstones. cholecystectomy. Yeah. 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 Well, you'll want to do that too with medications. Do you want to talk about the side effects, the benefits of, the alternatives to prescribe medications, particularly if they're high risk, like your anticoagulants or your benzos, opioids, that type of thing. And then be sure to have a system that closely monitors patients on medications that have a known toxic side effect. Lastly, I would say make sure that clinical staff who administer medications are trained to adhere to the five rights.
0: Five rights. Okay. Now, what is the five rights?
1: It's a safety measure that nurses use to prevent medication errors, and it, it represents verifying that you have the right patient. That you're giving that patient the right drug in the right dose, uh, the right route, which basically is just the means of delivery. Okay. So you're giving them it in pill form, injection, or IV. Gotcha. And that you're giving it to them at the right time. And I think there's substantial support for the fact that following the five rights has served to reduce medication errors.
0: Shelly, I tell you what, this has been fantastic. We've covered a lot of ground here and a lot of information that is, I would say, paramount to being able to, one, either make sure you find yourself either not in litigation, ways to prevent yourself from getting there, or... Uh, If you find yourself there, some ways that you can really protect yourself by the good documentation and the communication and those types of things. So much information. I think we certainly have some lists and some things here that we could provide in our show notes for listeners out there to maybe get more information about that. Also, if they were to have additional questions or want to reach out to SVMIC for more information, could they contact you or your department? Who do they need to contact?
1: Oh, absolutely. You can call the general number and ask to speak to anybody in risk education or risk evaluation services. Typically, those calls are going to go to the assistant vice president of either department, but I am happy to answer any questions as well so they can ask for me directly.
0: Well, fantastic. Shelly, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Not at all. Thank you, Brian. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Practice Made Perfect with your host, Brian Fortenberry. Listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and find show notes at svmic.com slash podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice. Policyholders are urged to consult with their personal attorney for legal advice, as specific legal requirements may vary from state to state and change over time.